This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. If you were to see the sacred, what would you see? Would you see beauty, light, color, form, simplicity, complexity, joy? One thing we can be sure of is that we would see in an immersive and full-bodied way. To really see the sacred is not about a fleeting or a casual glance. It is a long, loving look that changes us. My guest today is an expert in helping people to see the sacred. She is Jill Alexi, who works with the Vatican Patron of the Arts, where she regularly takes people not only through the artistic treasures of the Vatican, but of those scattered all throughout Rome and across Europe. She has launched a new initiative called Seeing the Sacred that brings some of those treasures to you, where you are, while also teaching you and guiding you towards a more profound encounter with God through beauty. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today. Let's talk about seeing the sacred. Jill Alexi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lenny, for having me. Jill, let's jump back, if you don't mind, to like, I don't know, February of 2020. I know for most people that seems like decades ago now, but maybe it does for you too. I don't know. But February 2020, where were you? What were you doing? So, yes, I think for me, it wasn't just decades. It was literally a lifetime ago. But (laughs) in February 2020, I was on a mountaintop in Italy. Every February, I do my annual ski retreat in the lead up to Lent. And I was there preparing for a bunch of special events that we were going to host at the Vatican throughout the spring the inauguration of the Holy Stairs Sanctuary and a big restoration that was done there, and a special evening with the Raphael Tapestries. Mm. This year is the 500-year anniversary of the death of the artist Raphael. So they were doing all kinds of really neat things. And in my opinion, the neatest thing that they did was in February 2020, they put all of the original tapestries that chronicle the lives of Peter and Paul from the Acts of the Apostles, and they placed them inside the the Sistine Chapel. So I was in the mountains, kind of arranging all of this, literally came down off the mountaintop and into the Sistine Chapel one night in like late February. We spent an evening praying the Bible in the Sistine Chapel with a bunch of my academic friends and priest friends and church friends. It was totally awesome. And then one week later, I was scheduled or did fly back to the United States for a board meeting with the Catholic Extension Society. And when I was in the air, this was the first week of March, when I was in the air, the international borders closed and haven't opened since. So I have been in the United States, (laughs) unable to get back to my apartment since early March. So basically, February 2020 was the last time I was in Rome kind of doing what I do. And it's been changed for me ever since. (laughs) So... I mean, there's so much that we could talk about there, this mountaintop experience, then coming down the mountain, right? And then being locked, I guess, out of the country you've come to live in and sort of stranded in the country of your birth in the United States. So tell us a little bit about, you know, 
I, I imagine for many people listening, like to hear that you were up on a mountain and then you're in the Sistine Chapel, like this is, I mean, I imagine it's still kind of special and significant for you to walk in there, but it's not unusual. Working with the Vatican patron of the arts, you find yourself in the Sistine Chapel often, in the Vatican museums often. What have you been doing for the last several years in this work in the Vatican, especially with sacred art? Well, yeah, actually, most mornings, I do begin my morning in the Sistine Chapel around about 7.45. There are very few people. It's it's very rarely empty anymore. If you ever hear people saying Sistine is empty, it's pretty much never empty. Mm-hmm. But there's very, very few people. And, you know, I have some quiet prayer moments. And then I'll welcome people into the Sistine Chapel. And they think they're getting a tour when really what they're getting is a theology lecture for 45 minutes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They wouldn't sign up for the theology lecture, but they do sign up for an empty Sistine Chapel. So it's a little bit of a bait and switch. But yes, the Sistine Chapel is a place that I regularly visit. And I regularly do things, like I mentioned, going on retreats to kind of these places of incredible natural beauty that have really, really amazing retreat homes and lots of connections with monastic life and contemplation living. So that kind of stuff is normal for me. And it's kind of grown out of an experience of having gone over to Rome to do a one-year course in spirituality after I was studying at Notre Dame. I went for one year and that was at the end of 2007. <laughs> I have been there ever since. So talk about the eternal moment in God. My one year has become the eternal year in Rome. But uh-huh. what it's kind of developed into is after studying there, I now do a whole range of projects officially unofficial. So I That's am- the Roman way, isn't it? Yes. There's a perfect Roman word for it. It's called the sfumatura. And that is the specific name for the smoke that comes out of the Sistine Chapel when they're electing a pope. Uh So black if there's no pope, white if there's pope, but it's this really foggy kind of hazy (laughs) cloud. And that explains the Vatican perfectly in a nutshell. And for those who don't know, when they're electing the pope and you're standing in the square, You don't know if it's white or if it's black for like the first minute. You're like, is that gray? (laughs) (laughs) Like we kind of sort of have a Pope, but we're not sure. Just gray. And then all of a sudden it becomes really clear. So that's Fumadura is kind of where I exist in that Mm. foggy haziness. But it kind of allows you to get stuff done. As I said, undercover evangelize, really share theological and philosophical insights with people under the guise of maybe sacred art or history. And so now what I do is just kind of seek out those opportunities, whether it be within the Vatican museums and the Vatican patrons, with the Council of Culture, with a pontifical university, to design programs that will allow me to undercover evangelize, but also kind of find these points of interdisciplinary synthesis Mm. where we can kind of make not kind of make, like really make, hopefully really make the life of the church and the tradition and scripture that the church has to share with the world relevant to really contemporary experiences of maybe travel or leadership or whatever it might be. Who are some of the folks that you've been working with over these years? So like you said, sometimes you're doing this undercover evangelization, so it's not necessarily people coming for these purposes of kind of rediscovering or immersing themselves in the treasures of the church and to have an experience of the growth of their faith. So who are the people that you find yourself interacting with? 
Well, it's interesting you should ask because being stuck stateside for the last, oh, I don't know, nine months, I've like organized the list (laughs) so I can tell you. But yes, it's a very, very diverse list I have found. So, you know, since I've gone to Rome in 2007, I've also been assigned to projects in Belgium and Paris. In the past, I've lived in London. So I've really lived all over and I have never in my experience, experienced a place as international and as diverse as Rome. Hmm. And so this group of people that I work with come from all classes in society, from all range of faith backgrounds, and really from just nations all over the earth. So people might be drawn to come to Rome, or I say Rome, but I should really say Europe or to travel, because they want to see something that's quote unquote the best. So there's this idea of watching documentaries or getting travel guidebooks and everything's the top 10. You know, it's really interesting being in the Vatican, you see this idea that a philosopher and an art historian, early art historian, Johann Winkelmann had of like the top 100 works. Hmm. And just introducing this idea of the top 100 is something that is so living with us today. And so you might get people from Singapore and Hong Kong who work in entrepreneurship and banking and finance or healthcare. And they want to come because they want to see the best stuff that's really compelling to them. And they want to see, again, like the top list. But then you might also find, I found that there have been diplomats, so heads of state and kind of leading consultants and thinkers from the Middle East who have a very, very strong commitment to their Islamic faith and renewing their cultures and their governments from within a faith-based tradition. And they might come to Rome to see what the experience was like for the church in the past to have lived through or tried to implement those same goals. Sometimes, or I should say, I'm very close with a rabbi from New York who actually is the first person awarded a Master of Theology from the Vatican. So Hmm. not just like the masters that we get at Notre Dame, but the (laughs) official Thomas Aquinas, you are a Master of Theology. And I believe it was two years ago, Rabbi Jack Bemperad, he received that degree from the Vatican. And so there are committed group of Jewish philanthropists and academics who come through and try to understand this Jewish-Christian dialogue. So it really runs the gamut. And that doesn't even, I didn't even mention, um, I work with a group of refugees. So people who have crossed the Mediterranean in boats and come from the slums of Lagos, Nigeria, they've been in Rome for three, four or five years, and they don't feel like they are worthy or they are high enough status to go into the major papal basilicas. And so we have to say, no, this is for you and it's free and you can go anytime. So whether you're with the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich, it's just something that really is drawing everyone in. And that's what I find so attractive and addicting myself. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. My guest is Jill Alexi, founder of See the Sacred, a multi-platform cultural enrichment initiative specializing in pilgrimages, private tours of sacred art and architecture, and a growing array of digital content and virtual tours. So Jill, I've actually had the opportunity to see you in action doing your thing in Italy. Some years ago, I took a group of undergraduate students from Notre Dame to Rome, Orvieto, and Florence, and you helped to organize this pilgrimage of sacred art for us. And the first time we did this, we did this twice. The first time you were 
kind of our direct guide through that time, the second time you helped to set everything up for us. For a pilgrimage like that with a group such as ours, what are your hopes and aims when you put this together or maybe even lead the pilgrimage? And then how do you pull it off? Well, yeah, I re- those are some of my, you know, fondest, fondest memories from the past decade of, of doing what I do. We were really partners in crime. <laughs> and, you know, if somebody came to me and said, here's your magic wand and you get to design or come up with whatever kind of program that you think fits the zeitgeist the best right now, I think it's exactly the program that you came up with, Lenny, and this course on eschatology in art. Because I think really what makes these experiences of, we're calling it travel. I hate calling it that because I think it's really experiential education and I think it's visual theology and philosophy. And it's kind of one of these things, you know it when you see it, pun intended, but (laughs) when you are going to these spaces with, you know, so this was a group of undergraduate students and they were earning credits towards their theology prerequisites, but they were outside of their comfort zone, meaning it's not just a classroom where they are kind of so worried about all of their learning goals and outcomes and getting the right answer and formulating something that seems smart and full of critical thinking. Instead, you can just like see this wonder and awe kind of come over their face. And I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, when we went it was a dialogue. So you and I are talking, but we're inviting the kids to talk. And then you have people speaking a bajillion different languages, dressed a bajillion different ways, all kind of around you. So you're being constantly stimulated. And then you are being confronted with truly, truly wondrous or majestic scales of buildings or incredible art that maybe articulate something you never quite could capture in reading a book or in trying to write it down, which is not to say that those things mm-hmm. <laughs> don't count, but Thank it's kind of that. a leg and a right leg. You can use both to walk. And so written text and then visual text, when people have access to both for the first time, it's such an incredible aha moment. So designing or planning a way for people to have set series of experiences where they can really be immersed in that. And I think it's like, so it's heavy without people realizing it's heavy. And you're doing some really deep thinking, you're really developing some incredible critical thinking skills, that if you do that in a day for two, three, four hours, and then just take the rest of the day to eat nice food, or go for a walk, or have quiet prayer, or whatever it might be, the immensity of that experience can sink in. And I think what was so cool about this eschatology and art program was that, and like, this is all kudos to you. It it was so intentionally, (laughs) but it was so intentionally designed to give that contemplative space. And it doesn't have to be travel. It could be anything in life today. People don't design contemplation into the program and plan of their lives. And you get these, eager students. Well, some of them aren't so eager, but they're eager by the time <laughs> we're halfway through. And they, I, I could almost see them feeling like free because they're so free to have this incredibly in-depth active experience that goes part and parcel with the contemplative element. And it's like they're living their best life for 14 days. And to just step back and watch that process happen 
just having kind of planned out, like, again, really intensive physical, intellectual experiences, along with very, very intentional, but also very laid back time and space and social gathering. I think it can be really powerful for people today. And I think we saw that the power of that in those students. You know, as you as you talk about sort of experiential education and giving a sense of these immersive experiences where you're actually surrounded by and directly confronted with the things that you're seeking and studying, I think back to probably the place that did it most fully and completely for me and the, the pilgrimage that you helped to lead for us, which was being in Orvieto in the Basilica and in the Frangelico Signorelli Chapel where literally on all sides you're surrounded by these masterpieces of sacred art, which give, in some ways, a glimpse or a hint or a draw towards the final things in the Christian imagination. And Mm -hmm. at least for me, one of the most beautiful things, like you're talking about, was watching the students who had done a tremendous amount of work up to that point, who had traveled quite a bit that week already, who had become sort of recalibrated to the pace of learning how to gaze at and contemplate art, Mm -hmm. losing themselves in the time and the space of that place, right? So they, when you speak about being free, like to me in glimpsing that, I saw them freed to wonder and to contemplate. What is a space like that do you think do I don't know, maybe especially in our modern lives where we don't really have, like you're talking about, those sort of intentional spaces and ways of conducting ourselves to lose ourselves in wonder and contemplation. Well, often when I go into these spaces, so it could be the Saint-Chapelle in Paris or the Signorelli Chapel in Orvieto or the Sistine Chapel. It could be any of them. But for me, it's like when you step inside, I always call it the whoosh of salvation history, Hmm. which is feel this this whoosh that's swirling around you and you feel the pull of, of that vortex. And I think sometimes there can be, again, this element of visual believing and visual thinking, so visual theology and philosophy that you're like, when we say the transcendentals or the good, the beautiful, and the true are attractive, you feel, yes, you're attracted to the art because it's it's beautiful. It's mathematically composed to work on your cognitive brain to, to be quote unquote beautiful. But beyond that, what you just mentioned, this wonder and this awe, it's whooshing and whirling around you because there's the patina of prayer that's adhered to those walls of people has prayed in those spaces for hundreds of years. There's the cavernous space that makes you feel like on the one hand that it was all made just for you, but is so much bigger than you. So you're inside and outside yourself at the same time. And you finally are, again, stimulated enough. So you don't have to be stimulated by your phone, but you're stimulated by the sights, by the sounds, by everything that's kind of going on in these spaces that are never quite quiet. There's always a busyness that's going on there so that finally you can be quiet. And I just think when people are quieted in that sense, they're so surprised by it and in love with it, like immediately fall in love and are attracted to it, that they just want to live in that whoosh for a while. Not forever, because it it's like, it's too much. <laughs> you can't, you just start to get overstimulated or you just start to think too many deep thoughts. And I think that's a beautiful part about it as well. Like you experience it, but then you step away from it 
and let it sink in in whatever kind of laid back, chilled out, social, friendly way that you need to allow that experience to stick with you. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. My guest is Jill Alexi, founder of See the Sacred, a multi-platform cultural enrichment initiative specializing in pilgrimages, private tours of sacred art and architecture, and a growing array of digital content and virtual tours. So we started our conversation, Jill, talking about February 2020 and what came before that being placed as you were in Rome and all throughout Europe, going to these actual places to be face-to-face a lot of times with the masterpieces of Western art, sacred art, to bring people into these encounters and experiences. And now, on the other side of February or March 2020, you find yourself sort of locked back stateside. And yet, it seems that you haven't left your mission. It maybe has changed or transformed in some way. So you're seeking to kind of do some of the same things you were doing, but in different ways while you're away from the places where you usually do your work. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing now back stateside and how in this different mode and under these different circumstances, you've been seeking to show people the sacred. (laughs) Well, yes. So I think the words we're supposed to use are pivot and disrupted. (laughs) Uh New normal. (laughs) Yes, yes. The reality is, yes, I was in the United States and could not get back to Rome. But the other element is you didn't, Like now looking back, we're like, oh, yes, it's been this way all year. But in March and April and May, you didn't know if it was going to change by June. Right. So there's like been a lot of uncertainty along the way. But one thing that immediately became certain to me in my mind is, you know, if I had gone to Rome for one year of theological study and had gotten roped into a decade of being officially unofficial on Vatican projects. I never had the time to do what Americans do best, which is to make strategic plans and develop (laughs) memos and systems. (laughs) And covers for the TPS reports and all that stuff. Yes, yes. Exactly. So I have, it's almost like, I feel like when you're a worker in the vineyard of the Lord, you're constantly picking up all these fruits. And then, you know, it's like, you don't even have a basket because I didn't go in with my TPS reports. I didn't have my basket. I just had my hands. And for me to pick up even one more fruit off the vine, like something's going to drop and fall. It's kind of like you got to put down what you have and organize it. And so that's what this year has turned into for me. It's been a real blessing. It's, I mean, it's been a desert. I remember when we were studying together, we had a director in the theology program who said, it's the desert. It's the <laughs> like the desert of the desert fathers, that kind of desert of study. It's a mm. penance. And I feel like that's what it is for me for organizing all of this vision and trying to transition it. But in the same way that the desert fathers like embrace their opportunity, like this has been such a wonderful opportunity because it will take some time, just like we're taking the time right now for people to see that you know, these projects that are out there, these opportunities that are out there are about formation. And it's not just about maybe travel or philanthropy or trying to get donors or trying to put together a study abroad program or trying to teach a course of pontifical students. It's it's actually just about formation and trying to develop really attractive but dynamic theological and philosophical approaches that can live at sort of an interdisciplinary space. So sometimes that's just a lot of boring administrative work. And actually, it's 
I've been chuckling when we've been going through this program because during your introductions, your little succinct intro of what I'm doing is so much better than what I've been working on with the Vatican web and branding agency for six months. Well, that's like, just one of the free gifts we give to our guests here at Church Life Today. You get a little succinct uh, sort of summary of what you're doing. So freely given. Well, that could have saved. Yeah. So what have I been doing for the last year? Trying to nail down what you just managed. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I do think that one of the things that's limiting about experiential education and formation is that you do have to be in person. And we have so many wonderful technologies and opportunities to make things now more available to people who maybe who don't have the health or the money or even the inclination to make time for that. Like the the program that we just discussed, Eschatology and Art, that's like available to Notre Dame students who can take two weeks of their life to as part of an academic semester to yeah. (laughs) Right. Under the conditions where you can actually fly places and all that stuff. (laughs) Right. So how can, is it going to be the same? No, but maybe you can start to build a program and a platform where people, instead of having the whole steak, can at least have like a little appetizer, or maybe they've already had the whole steak and they just need a reminder of what that was like. So just building up this complementary side that can maybe reach more people that also takes what I do, which has intentionally been very, very quiet and off the radar and behind the scenes and in a very prudent and trusting way, kind of, you know, make it a little bit more public and put it more out there. And so all these things is just a small step, yeah, to building a more interactive platform where people can have, you know, sensory, experiential access into culture that ultimately forms them theologically and philosophically. Well, where can folks find you now, Jill, if they're, especially if they're at home and they're not making their way over to Europe and you're not there right now anyway, where are you available online and where can they find you? Yeah, so we all meet in the virtual space Mm -hmm. at the moment. And so one of the things that I did do this year was I built two websites. So one is this seethesacred.com, which is a very kind of easy entree into understanding what virtual tours are like and then in-person experiences and how they go part and parcel. And then the other one that's coming for the Feast of the Epiphany, my own epiphany is going to be com, which will better explain this approach to theological and philosophical formation and the kind of officially unofficial work that I've done in the past, but how people can be partners in making that impactful in their personal lives and their work lives and the lives of their organization. Excellent. So those two websites, so people can be reminded of them. One is seethesacred.com. And the second one coming soon, or perhaps by the time you listen to this right there for you is Jill. Alexi.com. You can also find See the Sacred on YouTube and Vimeo, on Instagram at See the Sacred, also on Facebook at that handle as well. You can find, especially I should mention this on Instagram, these really cool little Insta tours and other posts. So some of these little, not the entree, like Jill was saying, but maybe little snacks, little appetizers to kind of whet the appetite of what the encounter, the engagement with these sacred places and sacred things would be like in person to kind of open our imaginations to them. Jill, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. It's been so good to talk with you. 
It's been great to talk with you again, Lenny. We need to do it again soon. You bet. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.